This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. Today, we're interviewing Dr. Lou Marcos. We're going to be talking about Plato and Platonic philosophy in theology. It's going to be an exciting episode. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. From Plato to Christ, we're going to be talking about it today, but before we do that, I want to remind you, Remnant Radio is an entirely crowdfunded ministry, so if you've been blessed by this episode or other episodes we've done, go ahead and give in the links in the description. There are links both for PayPal or Patreon, and you can support us a couple different ways, a one-time gift on PayPal or a reoccurring gift there on Patreon, as well as five bucks a month, you get access to extra content, and we're entirely crowdfunded from viewers like you, so if you like the content, consider supporting. Without further ado, let me introduce you to Michael Roundtree. The man, the myth, the legend over there before I introduce Dr. Marcos. Michael, how are you doing today? I am doing very well today. Tomorrow we're going to we're going to go on a little ministry trip. We're going to hand up, head up to Kansas City and interview as many people as we can. We'll see what we come away with. Those will be taped interviews, so you'll have to be look, you'll have to look for those down the line. We know we have a uh, for sure a uh, uh, Mike Bickle interview secured and uh, and he's going to be opening up some other possibilities for us and we're also going to uh, we we have coming down the pike a, a release of the Kansas City Prophets and a whole big discussion with Dr. Sam Storms over that. So that's all going to be really fascinating. So a lot of things to look forward to. You guys make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss anything that we release. Now, uh, Dr. Lou Marcos, we're excited to have you on the show. Uh, how are you doing over there? And where is there? Thanks for having me on. (laughs) Uh, My name is Lou Marcos. I'm a professor of English and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. And this week I'm finishing my 31st year teaching here. So I've been here a long time. Uh, My specialties are romantic and Victorian poetry, but I also specialize in the ancient world, Greco-Roman, and also C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And I just published my 23rd book, so I got a lot of books out there. They're all on my Amazon author page. Uh, Plato to Christ is one of them. The Myth Made Fact, Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes, uh, From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics, uh, Apologetics for the 21st Century, Atheism on Trial, lots of different things. Uh, My passion, though, these days is anything that brings Athens and Jerusalem together. In other words, our Greco-Roman legacy coming out of Athens and our Judeo-Christian legacy coming out of Jerusalem. And they come together. And because I love that, I'm a big fan of classical Christian education and spend a great deal of time speaking for classical Christian schools and conferences across the country and trying to build those bridges and see what we can actually learn from the pagan classics. So I'm really excited to be on your show. 
Wow. So you would disagree with Tertullian with his famous quote, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? I would. And, and, and again, you know, we, we're taking him a little out of context there. Uh, he also was somebody who was a great classicist and learned. I mean, what, what about read Bondage of the Will by Luther? He's attacking everybody left and right. But he quotes at least two dozen classical pagan writers in attacking uh, Erasmus. So it's kind of ironic. We can't really get away uh, from our classical education and what we can learn from it. Uh, and I've got a new book coming out uh, this summer called Ancient Voices and Insiders Look at the Early Church. And all the early church fathers are understanding what they can learn from the Greek classics. Now, of course, we use the Bible and Christ as our touchstone against which we measure things. But there was a clear understanding that, I mean, first of all, God chose to incarnate himself in the beginning of the Roman Empire, in a Greco-Roman world, united first by Alexander the Great, and then united by the Roman Empire, and he chose to have the New Testament, not in Latin, but in Greek, the Koine Greek that was common throughout the empire. It was a little bit later that Latin became the common language. At this point, it was still Greek, and it was influenced by writers, especially like Plato. Well, let so me talk ask to you a question. I, I, we got a lot of. Go ahead, I got. Josh. I've got twelve questions. I've already got typed out that I'm really interested in asking you. But we got people in here already heated up. Uh, you know, why stop with Plato? Why not baptize Confucius, Buddha, and uh, Tao Tzu? I'm gonna slaughter <laughs> that, that pronunciation. Uh, you know, we've got uh, comments in here saying, "Hey, you know, uh, why why use Plato as?" Uh, the 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 epicenter of Christian theology. How, why why look at Platonic thought and how that affects Christianity? Why don't we just read from Christ to Christ instead of from Plato to Christ? Maybe we can address some of these straw mans up at the top of the program. Uh, what exactly you know when we're talking about Platonic philosophy and the Christian worldview? Are these things entirely? Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're not opposites necessarily. They're not. They're, it's not an oxymoron to view these things as uh, working together necessarily. Can you speak into that for us? Now, first, I should say that my hope is that we will get other Christians, say a Chinese Christian, writing from Confucius to Christ, and see what we can learn there. But I'm writing as an old Western man, as C.S. Lewis called himself, and so I, I you know, we're, I'm going to focus on my own tradition, but. Although I think we can find bits and pieces of truth in all the different cultures of the world, because we're all made in God's image, and we all have the imago Dei, the image of God, but why is the Greco-Roman special? Because, again, God chose to incarnate himself at that moment and time and place in history. And so if we're really going to understand for instance, St. Paul, we need to understand this because you understand St. Paul is the new man. He is Jewish by religion. He's a Pharisee. He is Greek by education, and he is Roman by citizenship. And so in Paul himself, you have a coming together of all these strands. When when uh, Paul speaks at the Areopagus, Mars Hill in Athens, he builds bridges and actually quotes two of their pagan poets as if they were proto-Christians or proto-Jews used by God to prepare the Greco-Roman world for the coming of Christ. And so I do think we can find evidence all around the world. But specifically here, I mean, the earliest apologists, people like Justin Martyr, uh, were, were quoting 
the Greeks and building bridges. And Plato just got a lot of things right. Let, let's put it this way. For, for Dante, Virgil, remember Virgil is Dante's guide through the Inferno and Purgatory and the Divine Comedy. And for Dante, Virgil was the farthest that human reason can go apart from grace. We cannot be saved merely by what we can figure out with our reason. That calls for special revelation and grace. But I believe Plato went almost as far as a human can go without having the direct revelation of Christ in the Bible. There is a lot of common ground. He got a lot of things right. So he's not really that, that much, is what you're saying. Like, just a little bit more, Plato. Just a little bit more. Little bit. <laughs> not so much of this. Let's put it this way. You know, if Plato could have met Christ, what I hope he would have said is, yes, that's what I was heading for. I never could have guessed it. I never could have figured it out. But now that it's revealed to me, I recognize. And by the way, I sort of have proof for that. Let's look at the story of the Magi. Who were the Magi? Obviously, there weren't Christians. There weren't any yet. But they weren't Jews either. They were probably Zoroastrians, perhaps from Persia. But whatever they were, they didn't have the Old Testament. They only had their general revelation. They studied the stars. And through that general revelation, they followed it, and it led them to the Christ child. Now, when they got there, they could have said this. You've got to be kidding me. I came a thousand miles for this? Forget it. I'm never going to follow a stupid star again, right? But that's not what they said. What they said, and I'm putting words in their mouth, but it's clear, yes, this is what we have been searching for all our lives. We never could have guessed it, but now that we're here at the foot of the child, we recognize this is him. And why? Because it says they got down and worshipped him. They didn't just give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They worshipped the baby. All right? So they're recognizing that this is the fulfillment, the consummation, the end of their journey. And I believe that Plato would have had, the, and I hope he did have the same reaction. I, does Christ appear to people at the moment of their death? I don't know. You know, it talks about how Christ preached to those in prison. Well, as C.S. Lewis says in The Great Divorce, that moment when Jesus preached to those in prison in Sheol was an eternal moment. And so in some sense, there's no prisoner that he didn't preach to because that took place outside of time, not in time, but out in eternity. And so maybe the gospel was preached to Plato. And I believe he would have recognized it as the end point of all of his yearning and learning. Sounds like it's well, an old school version of Peterson, the, 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 the psychologist that we're all watching and waiting for one Tolkien to turn him into C.S. Lewis. Like, man, we want that guy playing for our team. And he is, it's like, it's like having to sneeze and not being able to. It's like watching this guy talk about the biblical drama and saying there's this perfect hero archetype and Christ is a fulfillment of this perfect archetype. And, you know, he, transcendent truth and the Bible is the necessary precondition for all Western truth. And we're all sitting here going, come on, dude, just do it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I get it. You're saying that this guy is he's got stuff that he's getting right. It's not that he is informing Christian thought or shaping Christian thought necessarily, but he is speaking to what is true. Just to be fair, a few people have asked me that. You know, I try not to be a prima donna, so I just accepted, the, the, you know, the title. Well, my title, my original title was From Plato to Christ, Ascending the Rising Path. The, the publisher came up with, 
how Platonic thought shaped the Christian faith. I probably should have fought a little harder because a better subtitle would have been how Platonic thought was completed in the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. But that's not as catchy. (laughs) I mean, that's really what I'm saying in the book. I'm not saying that they needed Plato to understand Christianity. It's just that they found... Okay, listen, and I'm borrowing a little bit from a, a man named Don Richardson who wrote, uh, who wrote Eternity in Their Hearts. Notice that they had no problem borrowing from Plato words like logos, the word, and words like theos, God. But they did not borrow from the Greeks Zeus. If they started referring to God as Zeus, it would have been syncretism and confusion. But there were certain things that... That's why I think... A Christian can learn a lot more from Buddha than, say, Muhammad, because Muhammad is actually taking scripture and twisting it, whereas Buddha is beforehand and might have seen the fullness of truth. Uh, So, again, the fact that Plato is before makes it a little bit different uh, and makes it more as if he's groping and reaching. I mean, what about Melchizedek? He wasn't a Jew. He used the phrase El El Yon, God the Most High. That wasn't uh, the, the Jewish name, but Abraham seems to have accepted it as somehow accurate. This is God Most High. So that would be an, an example uh, from Scripture. Or Moses, when Jethro gave Moses the uh, advice to set up people under him, you know, sort of delegate power, as we say today. It doesn't seem like Jethro was a believer. He was a pagan. He wasn't a Jew, clearly. And yet Moses learned from him and used some of his ideas as a vehicle for expressing the true truth that was revealed to him on the mountain. Okay. Okay. Uh, Well, Uh, hey, all this talk about Plato, I, I have a question. Do you believe that it's possible for a male and a female to be platonic friends? <laughs> are we, are we going to do it when Harry met Sally? No, that's not a real question. That's not a real question. Okay. But you, if you guys don't know, what, you guys know what platonic friends are, right? Like, you know, they're, they're not getting romantically involved. They're just friends. Okay. Anyway, uh, no. So I actually have a real question. And, and it's about Plato because we've talked a lot about him. And I think it's important because not everybody who watches this show is a history buff and knows all the ins and outs or remembers what they learned about Plato in 10th grade. So uh, could you tell us just a little bit more about him? Why do you consider him such a great philosopher? Talk to us about some of the things that he really nailed as well as a couple that he didn't nail. Josh, you're muted. You're you know, muted. Now, now, we, now we lost it. Yeah. So we're losing connection. Josh, we're losing connection. I don't hear anything. Oh, I muted my mic. That was my fault, guys. I, <laughs> Michael, do you want to re-ask your question uh, since he's back on? We lost a connection real quick. Did you miss everything? Uh, a good portion of it. You're asking, hey, you know, why did you is, get my platonic friends man? joke? You at oh least no, got he, my caught the, he caught the joke. he caught the friends joke. Oh yeah, okay. he, we were all well, there. I'll just make it. I'll just go fast here. Tell us who Plato is. Not all of us remember high school that well. So, what did he really get right, and uh, that really maybe aligned with Christianity? And then what did he get wrong that did not align with Christianity? So, mm. 
nutshell biography and what did he get right and wrong? What did he get right and wrong? Great. So in the fifth century, we have this great character named Socrates who pretty much invents philosophy. He brings metaphysics and ethics together and kicks off philosophy with a focus on definition and dialogue. And his greatest pupil was Plato. Plato was born in the fourth, fifth century BC during the golden age of Athens and died in the fourth century BC. So he straddles the two. Uh, and Plato was his greatest student. And we have his dialogues. And Plato is most famous for the theory of the forms. And what we mean by the theory of forms is on our earth, we have lots of individual things. We have lots of different trees. We have lots of different chairs. We have lots of different rivers. But up in the heavens, in the world of being, as he called it, is the perfect tree or the perfect chair or the perfect river with a capital R. The ultimate absolute form of things are in the heavens. And what we see on the earth are imitations of that. Now, that goes for inanimate objects, but that also goes for abstract nouns like goodness, truth, beauty, and justice. We have lots of ideas and theories of justice, but there is something called justice with a capital J, the absolute justice in heaven that we are trying to get a glimpse of. And through the Socratic dialogue, what Socrates and then Plato, what they're trying to do is kind of rub away the fake justice with a little j all of our little man-made justices and try to get a clear vision of justice with a capital j and i'm using justice because his most famous dialogue the republic is all about what is the nature of justice so in uh, putting it in christian terms heaven is more real than the earth right god is more real than man we're, we're all flipped around we think that this is the world that's the most real and heaven is all shadowy right and Plato is trying to show us, no, the real reality are the eternal realities that are above. Now, sometimes in Plato, but more often in the Neoplatonists, like Plotinus, whom St. Augustine studied, they go too far and make our world only into a shadow. Plato didn't go that far. Now, again, Plato still, because he didn't have special revelation, still imagined basically that our soul was sort of trapped in our body. This full idea of us being an enfleshed soul, fully physical and fully spiritual, that's really beyond them. There's intimations of it maybe in Aristotle. Um, but you know, Plato, there were certain things he couldn't know about. This, this idea of the enfleshed soul, we're fully physical and spiritual, is something that would, I think, been very strange to him. The idea is escaping the prison house of the body and going forward. Now, he did imagine heaven, we, what we call the beatific vision, that goes back to Plato. The good, the true, and the beautiful, that goes back to Plato. The difference in what makes Christianity the, the full revolution, uh, revelation, and thank God, is that for Plato, the ultimate ideal is communing with the forms. But the forms are finally impersonal ideas. He didn't know that we would be communing for eternity with a very personal, in fact, supra-personal triune God. So there are limits on Plato, but Plato is pointing us in the right direction. He is not a relativist. He understands that there are absolute truths, and they are more true than, I mean, most Americans are empiricists. If I can't see it, smell it, taste it, touch it, hear it, it doesn't exist. 
No, for Plato, a lot of times our senses are what lead us astray. It's our mind's eye that is going to perceive that which endures, that which is real. And sometimes Plato may be closer to Christianity than we are in America because we've bought into this empiricism and all we want are facts and we don't understand that truth is higher than facts. Okay. okay. So uh, maybe as a follow-up to that then, could you talk to us about how Plato influenced the early church? The church fathers talk about Plato and uh, this this forms and ideas that you talked about it, it plays into theology and biblical interpretation. And, and we can get uncomfortable with that. Like, wait, wait, the Holy Spirit's my teacher, not a pagan over here, Plato. It, could you just speak into to some of that, the way Plato formed the early church's understanding of theology and scripture? A good way back to that. And, and, and the most famous way that Plato explains what I just said to you earlier is what's called the allegory of the cave. So we are all like prisoners. We're all the way deep down in the cave. We're chained to the chairs and we're facing the back wall of the cave. Now behind us is a roaring fire and in between the fire and our back are puppeteers and they're holding up these puppets of everything from the outside world. And the fire cast the shadows of the puppets on the walls and we spend all of our lives studying those shadows not knowing that they are actually shadows of shadows they're shadows of puppets which are shadows of the real things in the outside world and we go along thinking this is life this is reality and then somebody breaks their bonds and turns around and at first they're blinded by the fire but soon they see what's really going on and then with great struggle they go out of the cave they're blinded by the sun at first but slowly they come to understand the reality. They're moving from shifting shadows to that which is real. The, the, father of, uh, the, the father of lights in whom there is no shifting shadows, as it says in the New Testament, right? Now, in one sense, there's a real influence there on the nature of spiritual growth and sanctification, moving away from the shadows towards that which is really real and truly true. But there's another part of the Republic a lot of people don't realize. Plato isn't saying, okay, now you know the truth. You can go off on your own and just forget about everybody. That guy, the, the philosopher that gets out of the cave, needs to go back into the cave and help people to see the truth. Even though he knows they will laugh at him and mock him and spit on him and then kill him. It's amazing. It almost sounds like an early um, uh, prophecy of Christ by a pagan uh, of what will happen. But nevertheless... We need to go down there. See, this idea that the leaders of society should be the ones who are focused on truth rather than focus on facts and business and technology and all those sorts of things. So that had a profound influence on the early church fathers on the nature of reality and of being devoted to the truth and not you know, what is it? Uh, be ye not conformed to the world, but be renewed by the transforming of your mind. That's a very platonic thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In fact, Plato, there are images of sort of turning around. The word conversion really means turning around and going in the other direction. Uh, repentance, metanoia, means a change of mind. A lot of these things are very powerfully shown in Plato's dialogues and in the myths that he uses to illustrate the journey towards greater and greater truth. 
Yeah, Dr. Marcos, let me ask you about um, Plato's role in, I say, and I say solving, I might, might be an overstatement, the, the monistic, dualistic debate of like, what, what are things made of, right? Uh, you, you mentioned the, the substance form uh, uh, conversation, but also that this idea that, um, so, so I guess there's two questions here. There is kind of a uh, <laughs> pre-postmodernists, if you will, what we know as postmodernism saying there is no truth. We're kind of existing during the time of Plato, right before Plato, hanging out with Socrates and debating these stuff. And they seem to suggest, no, there is some objectivity to this. And then, and then how they kind of settled that debate with the, the, the conversation of monism and dualism. And can you explain some of that to us? I, I know I'm, I'm, un, I'm using a lot of words that our audience might not know. So I'm going to expect you to unpack this for them. <laughs> so I, I wrote a book a while back called Atheism on Trial. And what it's about is trying to show us that the struggles that are going on now between believers and new atheists have been going on for 2,500 years. There's nothing new under the sun. So I mean, before Plato were people that are known as the pre-Socratics, and they're also the Sophists. The Sophists might as well be modern deconstructionist relativists. There's nothing new under the sun. You know, they, we've been bought this evolutionary myth that everything goes from being superstitious to being scientific and true. People, and we have this idea that everybody believed in creation, and now everybody believes in evolution. Actually, they were debating evolution and creation all the way back in Plato's day. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. Now, before Socrates, these people we called the pre-Socratics, we don't have books by them. We only have fragments by them preserved by people like Plato and Aristotle and Cicero. But we can construct what they believed. And there were two very distinctive schools in the pre-Socratic world, from 600 to 400. There were these pre-Socratics, and one group of them were dualists, or, or even better, pluralists. They believed that the nature of reality was plurality. There was many things. Rather than one thing, there were many things, and those things were constantly in change, decaying, dying, being reborn, everything always in cycles. Heraclitus was one of these people. He said, you can never step in the same river twice because it's always changing. Then on the other hand, there were the monists, the word one, Parmenides and his pupil Zeno. And Parmenides said, actually, what you think of as change and dynamism and flux, that's all an illusion. Actually, everything is one. Everything is whole, and we are part of that whole, and there's nothing distinctive from it. This is very true in the higher Hinduism, what's called the Bhagavad Gita, the Song Celestial, where everything is one. If you only know it, you're one with everything. So one group says the nature of reality is endless change and plurality, many things. And the other one said the nature of reality is fixed and purpose and unified. All right. How do you solve that? Well, there were lots of different people that tried to solve that riddle. We call it the pre-Socratic riddle. But I think Plato gave the best answer. He said, you're both right. How are you both right? Because there are two different worlds. There is our world that he called the world of becoming. And our world, the world under the, under the moon, they would have said, our sublunar world under the moon, our world is a world of endless change. You can't really fully trust your senses because everything's in flux, everything's misty. But guess what? There's another world, heaven, the world of being. And the world of being is fixed and perfect. And we perceive it with our mind's eye. Right? So 
they're both right. That that's why we have this strange thing. So our world is constantly changing. The heavenly world is perfect. Now we're not going to agree a hundred percent with Plato because they did have a rather odd uh, cosmology that everything above the moon was absolutely fixed. And when they started really understanding what falling stars were, it kind of blew their mind. But still, heaven is again. How many how many people you've spoken to your listeners think that heaven is like earth with all the stuff thrown out? Okay, heaven is not less than heaven is more than the earth. It's not like we are like God is uh, we are bodily and God is non bodily or we're corporeal and God is uncorporeal. God is transcorporeal. He's not less than we are. He's more than we are. It's not like we're personal and God's impersonal. God's transpersonal, right? So already Plato is helping us to understand this strange dual nature of reality because there are things that are in flux and will die and there are things that are perfected and fixed and eternal. And I think he understood that. And that's why our language could be real if our language can point to the real things, the forms of goodness, truth, and beauty, then we can trust language. But we have to be philosophers and work on our definitions. So, uh, so uh, some people are going to push back on this, and they're going to say that, well, didn't Plato give rise to certain heretical groups such as the Gnostics, where there was this emphasis on the spiritual over the material, and Plato saw the the and and maybe especially Plato's followers. You said Plato didn't go quite as far as them, but just the idea that that is what's real, or even that it's more real than what's down here. Uh, whereas in the incarnation, we see God completely affirming his material world and God, after he creates the material universe, the heavens and the earth, seven times he says either it was good or the final one, it was very good. And so uh, and so this sort of platonic notion has crept into the church where you know you have hymns that are celebrating that I'm going to fly away from this sort of material world or preachers talking about the body being this sort of prison that holds us in. And, and so people will, will push back on this and say, this is actually not a Christian idea. This, I, this idea that, uh, that these are just shadows down here that are in some way less real. No, we want to affirm the material creation. There's an inherent goodness in it. Yes, it's been cursed and ruined by the fall, but Jesus is coming back to redeem the material world, not to zap us away to an ethereal spiritual place called heaven, but to bring heaven to earth and to unite the two into one. And, and so what would you say to somebody who pushes back with that, with that sort of, uh, with that sort of argumentation? It is true. And that's what's the unique thing about Christianity is the understanding of the resurrection body. And there are so many Christians who think when we die, we become angels. I mean, I absolutely love it's a wonderful life, but very bad theology. Okay. We don't become angels when we die. We will have resurrection bodies, at least after the second coming, we will have resurrection bodies. I don't think Plato, I don't think anybody could have fully grasped that reality. That, to me, that takes special revelation. Still, I should mention one thing, and I spend a whole chapter on this. During most of the Middle Ages, by which I mean the Latin Middle Ages, uh, I mean, there was the, the Byzantine Empire that still had everything. They still had Greek. 
But during most of the age between uh, Augustine and Aquinas, Greek is pretty much a lost language. Even Augustine knows almost no Greek. He doesn't like Greek, actually. He only wants Latin. And even by then, read carefully the City of God. There's only one Platonic dialogue that Augustine quotes directly, and it's the Timaeus. And it was because it was a Latin translation of the Timaeus. Much of it was lost until it came back in the Renaissance. But what's interesting is God knew what he was doing because the one Platonic dialogue that was, was, that was still there in the Latin Middle Ages was the Timaeus. And that's the one that comes closest to the Bible because it's a creation story that actually, it doesn't go to the extreme of saying this is good and this is very good, but it does present God as a demiurge. And it even says that he fashioned the world in accordance with a perfect being, which almost sounds like God, the son through whom all things were made. It's kind of amazing. He even speaks about the angels having bodies that are so perfect, they don't decay. Uh, but when you turn away from virtue, you'll decay and fall apart. So it's just interesting. And if you've ever seen the School of Athens, the famous uh, fresco by Raphael in, 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 the, in the Vatican, uh, Plato and Aristotle are on the steps there. And Aristotle's holding a book that says Ethics. That's the Nicomachean Ethics. Plato's holding a book that says Timaeo, the Timaeus. That was the We might have lost him again, so uh, we're going to have to remember the Timaeus, the book that is being held uh, uh, up there at the, as he said, Sistine Chapel, is that what he said? <laughs> yeah. You're lost. You're lost. It's yeah. okay. He'll call um, right back in like he did just okay. a moment ago. It's perfectly fine. I, I've got, Yeah. I think there's a lot of great well, insights. So Josh, while, while we're waiting for him to, to call back in, you you picked this book up. What interested you in this subject, Josh? On from Plato to Christ, why did you even pick this book up? Well, I I have I, I have, I have him, him back him right here. Back right here. Um, yeah, l let me just let him finish that question, and I'll 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 uh, jump on that. You you were you were saying, uh, Doctor Marcos, uh, two books are being held by uh, uh, Plato and uh, and Aristotle and Aristotle. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I'll pick up from there. Okay, so again, if you see the School of Athens by Raphael, it's a fresco in, in, in the, the Vatican. Those are all those great philosophers on the steps. And at the center are Aristotle and Plato. And they're each holding a book that's representative of them. Aristotle's holding a book that says ethics. That's the Nicomachean ethics, the idea of the golden mean. But Plato's holding, not the Republic, as you might expect, but the Timaeus, because that's the book that they knew from Plato during the Middle Ages. And that's the book, again, that comes, again, only, only the Bible says it, creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. Not, nothing. All mythology, including the mytho mythology of evolution, says in the beginning was stuff. Only the Timaeus comes within 100 miles of Genesis, as far as I'm concerned, suggesting that somehow creation is good and has a beginning. In fact, if you read the Timaeus, not only does God create space, he creates time. I mean, this is amazing. It's like he's getting, you know, getting in there before Einstein. So there was a lot of truth in there. And let me let me give you one other thing about even Plotinus, who is again more radical than Plato. If you read Aristotle's Confessions, he shows us his is basically his testimony. It's just extremely sophisticated and academic, but it is a testimony. And he says that. He didn't go from like atheism to Christianity. There were stages and one stage were the Neoplatonists. And he says, or, uh, he's, I think it's book seven. Augustine says that in the Neoplatonists, I read 
in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He had an understanding of truth about the Logos from the Platonic books. But only in the Gospel of John did I read that the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. So again, you, you need revelation for certain things that even the great Plato is not going to get. But Plato sets a good framework for the understanding of reality, God, man, and the universe, and all these things. I mean, people today still have a hard time believing God could become man, and that he could resurrect bodily, not be resuscitated, but go through death and come out on the other side with a resurrection body. You know, we need N.T. Wright to remind us of this, right? So, we don't want to give Plato too hard of a time. I think he got as far as he could, and that's why we need, as believers, to use our discernment and use the scripture and the creeds of the church to go the rest of the way. But let's see that we can learn things. And Plato can keep us on track. Folks, there are, okay, let me, let me jump into this. Right, This is my pet peeve, okay? You'll remember 50 years ago with liberal theologians, particularly liberal Protestants, if there was anything they didn't like in, in Christianity, they blamed it on St. Paul. Well, that's St. Paul. You know, he's a you know sexist, racist, homophobe, right? Well, if you at least consider yourself to be an evangelical, you can't get away with that. So what do you do? You blame everything you don't like on Plato. And they may say what they don't like about Plato is the body thing. What they really don't like about Plato is he's emphasizing hierarchy and difference and essential things like masculinity and femininity. That's what they really don't like. And that's why they're attacking Plato. And I've had that happen uh, to me many times in discussions. Um, so let's find out what the real problem is. Because there's a lot of stuff in Plato that will get us, and I'm speaking specifically evangelicals, back on track about the nature of reality and hierarchy and absolute truth and all of those things. And so I'm glad we've got him there. And yeah. I really yeah. think that without Plato knowing it, God of the Bible, Yahweh, used him to help lay the foundation for things. But again, it takes special revelation yeah. and, of course, grace. Yeah. I think that's really, really insightful. And Michael asked me this question, you know, why why did I pick up this book, um, you know, and read through this book? And, and the reason being was because of that very thing. It, I've begun to notice that um, entire swaths of theological communities will create a um, theological trope card, right? So if we talk about Calvinism— Oh, oh, trope card, Augustine uh, hung out with heretics and, you know, Augustine is a heretic and, oh, oh okay, well, then we'll, we'll talk about, you know, uh, you know, non-Calvinism, we'll talk about Arminianism is like, oh, Pelagius, slap, boom, we're Pelagius and we're going to find our, our person that we can toss down and kind of demolish the theological argument. Well, don't you know, and it's this genetic fallacy that, well, because it came from this or because it has some kind of similarity to this thing over here, therefore it must be you know, it can't be used at all. And uh, I've, I've just noticed that that's what people on the internet begin to do more and more of when they're not willing to do rigorous thought, uh, when they're not really willing to think and go look at source material and really study these things. Um, they just want to kind of cherry pick a, a few heresies and kind of just insert here. Um, so when I saw the, the title of the book, part of me was like, oh man, I hope this is a positive spin on Plato because he kind of gets a bad rap all the time. And the other reason I I picked it up was um, well I wanted to make sure that that uh, it wasn't absolute uh, what's what's the word 
I didn't know if we had to do a response to it. I don't feel like that's we, we've invited Dr. Marcos on, so we're not we're not doing a response <laughs> to that today. Answer your question, that's Michael. That's good. Well, well I, I've, I've always been I've always fascinated been. by the fact that the uh, the church fathers have taken such an interest in Plato. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Marcos, I want to read a quote to you. I don't. Do you know who Hans Boersma is? Oh yeah, yeah. Theolo- well, he wrote. He wrote, theologian. He wrote theologian. The, Wait a minute. Uh, one of them. I think he's the one that wrote the the preface to my book, The Myth Made Fact. Well, another book. He probably, did. He probably the did. dude loves Plato. <laughs> yeah, great guy. I mean, he loves Plato. So uh, anyway, I want to read a quote to you from him. It's in his book, Sacramental Tapestry, and I kind of thought about it as I was thinking about this episode. But uh, here's a quote. He says, "Well, I understand." that evangelical anti-Platonic tendencies are generally meant to defend the Bible. And that's why I'm mentioning this quote, because uh, in our chat, that's that's what we're seeing a lot of, is people want to defend the Bible and praise Jesus for that. Uh, but there's concern about why do we need Plato to defend or to interpret the Bible? So uh, Hans Boersma, who loves Plato, is going to defend his point. He says, it's ironic that scripture itself suffers the most serious consequences if we get rid of Plato. He says the the Platonist Christian synthesis made it possible to regard creation, history, and Old Testament as sacramental carriers of a greater reality. Creation, history, and the Old Testament had significance through most of the Christian tradition precisely because they pointed to and participated in a greater reality what the Platonists called forms or ideas, and what Christians insisted was the word of God himself. So I, I'm interested in your reaction to that to that quote, because as one honestly not deeply schooled in all things Plato, I took a political science class and read quite a bit of them in, in that, but, uh, but I haven't really considered him greatly in spiritual matters. And, uh, and as I read that quote, I think, well, it is true that there, there is – some analogy uh, going on between forms and ideas and how we perceive the logos uh, in Jesus Christ, the word of God. And while I do see some similarity in, in the fact that all things, they just as under Plato, all things point to the forms and ideas for us as Christians, all things point to Jesus Christ who gives meaning to all things. I see the similarities, but I kind of feel like as, as a, an unschooled evangelical, okay, I kind of feel like I had that already with just the Bible without Plato's help. Um, so convince me. I, I'm I'm the meme that says, like, change my mind, right? My mind, right. <laughs> uh, so convince me, change my mind. Why Why do I really need Plato to get it? Get it. For, first, I mean, just, just, just a, a good analogy here, okay? Really, you don't need a college education to survive, okay? You don't need it, right? But... It will Good. I don't have one. make I don't you have one. a fuller. <laughs> it'll it'll <laughs> engage you in things, give you more time to read and study, and you can you know use your gifts more fully, right? I mean, there's very few things we actually need to survive, right? Okay, maybe you're not in the college, but I'll bet you love super quality coffee. Okay, you probably don't need that to survive. Okay, there are certain things that give richness and fullness to it. But also, look, I'm an evangelical. I like to say the Bible interprets itself, but that's not always true, okay? We just like to say that. Uh, we, we do need interpretive structures to help us. Let me just show you how all of this was solved by Augustine. Augustine said, basically, Plato was right. Let's take the forms 
and put them in the mind of God. That's basically what Plato did. Took the forms and put them in the mind of God. And now we have a full metaphysic and a full understanding. Look, the, the, the way the uh, early church would say it is Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Joseph was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Daniel was educated in all the wisdom of the Babylonians and then the Persians and used all of that to serve God and to be a vessel or a conduit. So it does help there as well. But we need a philosophical language. Back then and even today, Judaism is a very this-centered world. Now, I think, uh, I'm sorry, this-centered religion. I think partly, I mean, look, let's just admit it. There's very little about heaven in the Old Testament until you get to Daniel. I think that's because that's God that's took true. the Jews out of Egypt, and Egypt, of all the civilizations in human history, the Egyptians were the most absolutely obsessed about the afterlife. And so I think God just had to say, all right, we need to take that away for a while and get these people purified and focused, right? But once the purification is there, we're ready to bring back that fullness. G.K. Chesterton wrote a biography of Francis of Assisi, and he said, you know what? In the early church, the church fathers really had to distance themselves from nature because there were so many real pagans who really worshipped nature then. But by the time we get to St. Francis, was it 1200 or so, or 1100, you know, again, the pagans are gone. Now it's time for us to rehabilitate nature for God and Christianity and Christian theology so we can take these things as tools. I mean, okay, to, to me, the same way that Plato can help me understand theology better, using, quote, New Age tactics like meditation can actually enhance my spiritual life and bring me closer to Christ. Does that make sense? Things like meditation and yoga, by which I mean only the positions, not the names they use. But the positions, those things are neutral. But I think they can be used to help us to grow spiritually towards Christ. So Plato, just like Latin, Plato exercises the mind. It allows us to see reality on two different levels. Now we're coming back to Borsmus, quote, we need to understand reality on two different levels if we're really going to understand Christianity, the Bible, especially the New Testament. You know, that's why I'm a big fan of Michael Heiser. I, uh, three times he interviewed me on the Naked Podcast, uh, and he's trying to reclaim the supernatural whoa, whoa, whoa. realm the of the Old Bible Testament. Bible podcast. Bible Let's not. Before people think you're way too pagan, they already think you're pagan. pagan. You like you like Plato. Now you're on this Naked Podcast. So you've heard of that? Oh yeah. And I've even I've even watched the uh, the Bible Project. That's good stuff too. Um, and the uh, the uh, <laughs> thing to say. So, but what I'm getting at is that we need because again, you're, you're absolutely right that so many Christians think you know when we die we become angels. But they're also we are too fixated on this ground as the ultimate reality. We need Plato to open our eyes. I mean, again, I think. We need more spiritual. We, we do need to keep focused in the physical. There are some people that are so whatever, so spiritually mm -hmm. minded, they're no earthly good and all that sort of stuff. But I don't know if that's the main problem today, really. <laughs> um, the, the, um, but, 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 but again, Plato, again, going back to Borsma, so that we can see the eternal shining through the physical. 
one of the things N.T. Wright helped us to, to, and not necessarily he's a great Platonist, but I think this fits with Plato. N.T. Wright reminds us that heaven isn't just up there. Heaven is all around us, and every so often it breaks in. I think a knowledge of Plato is going to help you understand that God's reality is always breaking. His kingdom is breaking into ours, and we are on a journey. Uh, and, and it's the journey of the philosopher. For, for Plato, it's sometimes the journey of the lover. But we're getting closer and closer again to that which is truly true and really real. And I still think our, our eyes need to be baptized that way yeah. to see yeah. and perceive greater realities. And for me, again, for me. sacramental. That, that sacramental, you can see the eternal in the temporal. The spiritual in the physical, you can see those things. There's a trafficking between the two realms, and I think Plato helps with that. Yeah, so I have a question when it comes to uh, the origin of the trichotomy with with Plato, um, because I think that's really interesting for Christian theology. Um, but before, I also want to give you an opportunity to kind of unpack what you meant by the yoga stuff, and I think I know what you meant. I think you're talking about that yoga doesn't have a patent on the human body moving a certain way, right? Like it's not like demons come rushing in. We've we've kind of gone out there and said, hey, do calisthenics, stretch. Yoga doesn't have a patent on certain movements. The demonic doesn't have a patent on those things. Um, you're not. What we we have gone out of our way to say is that the the traditional form of yoga, you're actually telling a story of a god that beheads another god. You, you probably shouldn't do a dance that honors a demon god. So I'll give you an opportunity to speak into that. Um, uh, but but I also want to have that question on Plato. It's my perception that in the Old Testament, it seems as if we have mostly a dichotomy. And then in the New Testament, we have these moments where Paul refers to the body, soul, and spirit almost as a trichotomy. Um, and that seems to be platonic in thought and in nature. So two questions, the yoga one, it can be succinct. It doesn't have to be too long. And then the other one being the, the, the question about trichotomy. Quickly. And this, this is what I said, like with yoga, a lot of times you are actually worshiping their deities. You have to be very, very careful. I'm only saying that the idea of stretching and all those things, just like meditation, meditation is fine. Transcendental meditation is a cult and you're actually saying, um, and you're, you're, you're actually meditating on Hindu gods. So you've got to be discerning. You have to understand what the worldview is. But the exercises themselves, all that stuff that came out of Dallas Willard and spiritual disciplines are fine. right? There are pagans that fast as well. But as long as our fast is focused on Christ and drawing us closer to him. Heck, in the same way, I can borrow techniques from Freud or Marx or Darwin, but reject the worldview. I, I can, there are certain techniques that may help me to unpack something, but I've got to not give in to the skepticism and materialism and all of that that's in Marx and all the other guys. Um, gotcha. So that would be the one thing. Um, but oh, now I forgot the other question. Plato, uh, what was the other question? Uh, oh, yeah, trichotomy. Again, you, you know what? Okay, is it okay for me to say that I'm, I'm a fan of Watchman Nee? He wrote a book called The Spiritual Man. I think if, if, if Plato was a Christian, he might have written The Spiritual Man. Because Watchman Nee, the great martyr for Christ in China, he spoke of a tripartite body. We have a body, a soul, and a spirit. The spirit is the deeper thing that communes with God's spirit. That's the spirit that God breathed into us. But the soul is a complex of the emotional the uh, intellectual and the volitional having to do with will. And I don't know, Christians debate about this, I debate about it. But it makes sense because we are made in the image of a triune God. 
So to think of ourselves as body, soul, and spirit makes a lot of sense. And Plato offers us a tripartite soul that is very helpful to help us understand the wrestling that is going on within us and how we, you know, it's, it's sometimes God's spirit that speaks directly to our spirit, which is somehow deeper than emotion or intellect or volition. Okay, well, uh, Josh asked a question about the way Plato and, and Christian doctrine might co- connect on, in terms of body, soul, spirit, uh, the, the trichotomy of our anthropology. Now I want to ask one about communion. And this, uh, Josh, this was a question probably like 20 minutes ago in the chat. Somebody asked about the Roman Catholic Church and communion. Is it possible that Plato's, uh, that Plato's views somehow affected the Roman Catholics' view on the Eucharist? Mm. What would you say? So uh, you're, you're saying, did did Plato affect communion's Eucharist? We lost uh, Dr. Marcos. He's already back. So I just wanted to make sure <laughs> he the, whole, the whole question. Oh, there he is. There he is. He comes oh, crashing God. right in. Oh, that's pandemonium. <laughs> the demon. I've, I've muted him. I don't know what to do. We're going to wait for that to stop, and then I'll unmute him. <laughs> you might want to just turn down your speaker. <laughs> Guys, I apologize. Oh, we're going to get him set back up. I'll have him turn down his speaker, and then he will hop back in. Says guest has muted themselves. Okay, so as we uh, think through this, I know that, okay, how about uh, that? Marcos is going oh, to hard stop here in a second. Why is this suddenly doing this? I don't know. I got it way down. Oh, I'm muted too. Great. Perfectly. Okay, cool. Thanks, man. Uh, here, let's see if this, this works. Oh, wait a minute. How are we now? We are good. We are good. Good, good. Let's finish up because I got to get to my, my uh, <laughs> final exam. Did okay, you so get all of my was, answer? I hope. Was, yeah, did the did the Roman Catholic yeah, the, communion, the Roman Catholic was, it, communion was, it, uh, was it was it uh, affected uh, by Plato? Affected by Plato. Huh. That's interesting. I mean, certainly the idea of the sacramental nature of the world is important, but the real high high view of the Eucharist is really coming, you know, later in the Middle Ages. So I wouldn't I wouldn't connect the dots exactly with Plato, but Plato certainly helps us to see a reality that maybe evangelicals can learn from. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a Baptist. I'm fine with, with remembrance. Uh, but we do need to remember that we live in a world that's charged by the grandeur of God, as Hopkins says, the poet, um, that God's presence is all around us. And that to a certain extent, everything is a metaphor for God, perhaps. God lifts up simple things into the higher things. And, and again, that we, we need to be reminded uh, of Plato. It is interesting that the high sacramentalism of the Eucharist comes about the same time that they're really focusing on the Holy Grail, which I think is interesting, uh, and trying to restore that idea. 
Excellent. Okay. I was picking on you in the comment section. I told uh, everyone, they're like, oh, it's a demonic attack. And I said, it's probably all that yoga Dr. Marcos is doing over there. Uh, I was just, just picking on you. I want to let you know. Uh, it was just all a good fun. Just joking. Just joking. Well, guys, I, I, I want to thank you, Dr. Marcos, for coming on the program today. It was an honor to have you. I know you've got to get to class like now. You've got a minute before you have to give a final exam. So thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate you coming. On Virgil and Dante. That's their final exam on Virgil and Dante. So, well, gentlemen, great talking to you. Blessings, and do send me the link when it's live, and I'll forward it on. Well, yes, sir. It's live now. I'll send it to you. <laughs> Blessings. <laughs> hey, we'll see you next time. Uh, well, Michael, uh, you got any kind of closing thoughts you want to share uh, at the end of that program? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. I, I love, I love how high energy and knowledgeable he is. It's oh, usually yeah. kind of hard to pair those two together. It's kind of one or the other most of the time. But uh, anyway, it's a, a fun episode, and I, I think it's something I need to to read a little bit more on in terms of just understanding the early church and how Plato affected them. I mean, I've read a fair amount, but every time I read it, I I just keep coming back to like, yeah, but I already had that. I had that from a scripture. But I wasn't in their worldview space, so I, I think that's a, a big factor. Uh, yeah, to me, I I can look at the Old Testament and find Christ everywhere, and I didn't need Plato to help me find him. No. Uh, I can look at the Apostles' interpretation of the Old Testament, and uh, and that's enough for me. And uh, and so, but with that said, like I'm not radically opposed, or I'm I'm not opposed to the things that he's saying. I. You know, he's upholding orthodoxy and he's mm -hmm. saying, let's just benefit from lowercase t truth wherever we find it. That's a good thing. And, and I think that's true. I do. Um, you know, whatever scientists discover out there, whatever we discover in history or whatever it is, I mean, those kinds of things are valuable to learn. I send my kids to school not to learn falsehoods. To, but to, to learn true things. I'll probably get a few falsehoods in there, but I discipled that too. My point being that there are good things out there to learn, and I think that we can apply those. Um, I don't think he's saying, like, we need Plato to understand the Scripture. He's certainly not no. saying that. So uh, I just think we kind of have to hold that intention. Yeah, I think the same—you nailed it on the head, I think, just now. When you when you look at um, a different uh, different— arts, different sciences, different uh, thoughts, you know, when it comes to, you know, uh, the stars and the way that, that the galaxy, you know, moves throughout the universe, um, the gravitational pull, you know, the Bible doesn't give us a distinct picture of how that actually works cosmologically. We don't really see um, how, you know, through what objectively is beautiful, what is artistic through the scripture. But yet we can see that in arts. We can see that in entertainment. We can see things that actually have this, this meta narrative of beauty as a story is told. We, we can see these things. And I think what, what Plato offers us is the earliest presuppositional apologetics, um, not evidentialism to say, hey, I can prove God exists because, you know, I'm looking at how this amoeba is shaped and the little you know, mechanical pieces. It's it's more intricate than a pocket watch. That's that's evidentialism, but presuppositionalism, suggesting that if there's anything that can be known, if there's any truth at all, it must come from somewhere. Uh, if there's any objective beauty that we can all say that is beautiful, it must transcend from some place. If there's any true morality, and and Plato gives us the earliest presuppositional apologetics, and I think for that we can look to Plato and go, hey, that's that's helpful. And as a Christian because it's true. All truth is God's truth. Even if it comes from a pagan philosopher, I can go, you know, that's helpful. And I'm going to use it for my Christian worldview because not, not that it, 
yeah, I'm not going to use Plato to interpret the scriptures, but when Plato gets something right, and I think it's helpful, I'm going to add it to my my quiver, if you will, in the same way science doesn't help me interpret the Bible, but science is helpful, and I want to add that to my quiver into my Christian worldview because it's true. So um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a helpful book. I would really encourage you guys to pick it up from Plato to Christ, uh, Dr. Louis Dr. Lou Marcos. Marcos. I don't know why I ooed him just now, um, but uh, I thought it was a great book. I well, really I think it's it. Louis and Lou. It is it, Louis Lou. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that his anyway. first name, Louis? Middle name, Lou. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Sorry, we had a couple of te- technical difficulties. Uh, that's the beauty and fun of live shows, isn't no it? You roll with the punches. But uh, man, I thought it was a fantastic discussion. And special thanks to Dr. Marcos for joining us. Uh, we loved this discussion. We'd love to have you back on sometime to talk about. Uh, I don't know. You seem to know a lot of stuff. So uh, if not Plato, maybe uh, maybe something else from history. But uh, you've written 30-something books, so I'm sure we can find something. But uh, anyway, loved having you on the show. So um, God bless you guys. Have a great week. Yeah, be, be looking forward to tomorrow's episode where we're talking about Baptist in Azusa Street. Uh, in that revival there. Um, Next week, we're going to have J.V. Fesco coming on talk about baptism and like the reformed view of baptism. Uh, We are going to be interviewing uh, speakers at the SEND conference, so looking forward to that as well. So stay tuned. Not really sure when all those episodes are going to be coming out uh, uh, from the SEND, uh, but we will be trying to get them. I think we're going to try to get them on Patreon as soon as possible. So if you've been blessed by this content and you want to get access to maybe some earlier episodes, maybe go check out patreon.com forward slash The Runit Radio. There's a link in the description. You'll get access to that content before everyone else. So that'll be fun. Blessings, guys, and we'll see you soon. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.